Fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 24 of Shut Up and Wrestle. And it's going to be another deep dive into the world and the history of United Kingdom Wrestling with a special twist. My guest is Bradley Craig, and I'll be talking a little bit about him in just a moment. I'm thrilled to get to that conversation because he's a great friend of mine and we always have a lot to say to each other. But before we get to that, I also want to say that I had a great time. In fact, as I'm recording this, I'm just getting back. I had a great time at the book signing for Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, which we had at the Milford Barnes and Noble in Milford, Connecticut. So if you were there, it was a pleasure to meet you. Of course, one of my close buddies, Northeast and really nationwide indie wrestler, the cure Lucas chase was on the scene. So it was great to see him. Great to see others. It was fun. And I've got more book signings on the way. So if you're looking for me and you happen to be fortunate enough to live in the New York tri-state area, there are a couple more coming up. I just want to mention, I'll be talking more about them in the weeks to come. But one of them is WrestleBash 22, uh, put on by some good friends of mine. It's happening in Parsippany, New Jersey. It's going to be the afternoon of August 20th. And that'll be here before you know it. And I will be signing copies of Blood and Fire there. I'm also the following week, the weekend of the 26th and 27th of August, I'll be in Albany, New York. That is the second annual um, weekend for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And I will have a table there. I will be selling copies of the book. And that's very cool because this year the IPWHF will be cutting the ribbon on an actual physical space where some of their memorabilia and Hall of Fame plaques and things like that will be um, uh, displayed. So I'm excited to be a part of that. The IPWHF is something that you should look into if you're not familiar with it. So a couple of spots that I'm going to be signing copies of the book at. And of course, I have my own that I sell from home. If you are interested in purchasing a signed copy of Blood and Fire, please do reach out to me at my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com, or you can catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Solomon and let me know if you're interested. Uh, aside from that, I'd like to get to this great conversation that I recently had. So Brad Craig is a fascinating guy, which you're about to find out. As I found out, um, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of wrestling and pop culture history in general. I always enjoy those intersections. So even though a a lot of this conversation we had uh, was about the history of wrestling in the UK and specifically in Scotland, where he is from, but also we got into uh, many other things such as, 
um, 90s WCW, early 90s, especially one of my favorite topics. And, um, you know, how they used to tour the United Kingdom and Europe in general. We got into that a little bit of the European perspective on American wrestling and its effect on UK wrestling. So uh, if these are interesting topics for you, then please do keep listening because this was a good one. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it is now my pleasure to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle um, a good friend of mine, somebody that I met through our mutual connections to the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. We've both been helping them out past couple of years, specifically with their programs. And he's also a wrestling historian like myself. You may have seen his work on slam wrestling, among other places. But he is also involved in something that I'm fascinated by, and it's probably going to be the first thing I ask him about, which is the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame of Scotland, which I think is a topic that there are a lot of listeners out there that would love to know about. So his name is Bradley Craig. Brad, welcome. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here on this uh, on this show, and it's great to have a chance to talk to you in some kind of capacity that's going to cover all of our interests <laughs> from popular culture right through to wrestling and as you mentioned the professional wrestling hall of fame for scotland which was how i kind of got noticed in the business uh, because although i'd done some design work and some writing work i've been kind of under the radar until i started up that project uh, which was a real passion project of mine it really started because as you know um, as, as much as anyone, uh, the WWE, because it's a cultural powerhouse, its history in, uh, within the landscape of professional wrestling has really been preserved and preserved in its own image uh, as it sees fit. And where the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame came in uh, for Scotland was that it seemed that between the demise of the British wrestling industry in the 1980s and present day, there was a significant amount of history that was lost due to, uh, due to various factors. And a lot of the modern wrestlers as well as wrestling fans only knew about WWE. They didn't necessarily even know about the independent scene, uh, which was happening at the time. So when there was a resurgence of professional wrestling in the 2010s, I thought it was a great time to honour the, the great names of uh, Scotland and, and bring them back in, in a way that was almost relevant to a modern audience right. as best as we could. So that was where that, that started. Uh, some of the names of the past were significant, such as the likes of George Kidd, who was one of the most fantastic mat wrestlers of all time. He really created a lot of the chain wrestling spots that we see today from the likes of Zack Sabre Jr. and the likes of uh, Gresham and so many others. Even he, he even had an influence on the likes of Danielson. And although some of these guys may not even know who George Kidd was, he's indirectly influenced their work through his teachings of the likes of Johnny Saint and others. So that was where I thought that it was important to go back in time assess some of the, the, the legends of that era, which had, you know, unfortunately kind of had their legend diminished because of history and effectively the, the kind of erasure of British wrestling. Well, that kind of lost history 
uh, is very interesting to me. And I've talked about it a few times on here with different guests, how we get the one mono version of wrestling history from WWE. And I even more have mourned in the past how WCW had their own history that they preserved. The history of wrestling in the southeastern United States was a big part of it. And that's, you know, I mean, WWE owns all their footage and they do have some of their stuff on there, but it's not the same priority to talk about, you know, wrestling from that part of the country. So certainly um, wrestling in the United Kingdom is one of those things where, like you said, what's so interesting to me is how it did have its own indigenous wrestling culture for decades, very different from here in many ways. And it died when W, you know, the WWF, after they took over North America, the first place they set their sight on, I guess, because there wasn't a language barrier, maybe, was the the United Kingdom. And um, so there was that golden era that that younger fans think about in the UK of the 90s and WWF and the discovery of the WWF. and, And that's all well and good. But what it did was bury the wrestling that came before, right? So I, I think I told you about this. I had, excuse me, I've had conversations with young British wrestlers and people like that in the world of wrestling over there. And I will sometimes make the mistake of wanting to talk about, hey, let's talk about world of sport. Let's talk about, you know, uh, Johnny Saint, Robbie Brookside, uh, I don't know, Big Daddy, like what? And, um, what they'll say is, oh, yeah, you know, I guess my dad watched that. I don't know. The earliest thing I remember is the WWF because that's what was on when I was a kid, you know, and um, it's a little depressing sometimes, you know. <laughs> no, it absolutely is. And the, the thing is, um, after the downfall of uh, the world of sport era, and there was the, the cancellation of British wrestling from television in 1988. Eventually, the resurgence of the WF made uh, decision makers in various television networks look back and think, have we made a mistake by aborting our indigenous wrestling? And, you know, should we try and, and bring back the domestic circuit? So there were, there were various attempts with mixed success to bring back a sense of television wrestling once it had been removed from the ITV schedule in 1988 with mixed success and in some cases it was a there were failures because they didn't necessarily learn the lessons that had been taught during the the kind of demise of of joint promotions and the the world of sport era significantly what i thought was interesting as well and we're talking about the uh, almost the kind of americanization of the british wrestling culture That's exactly what it is. There's no almost about it. I mean, it was that's totally what it was. Yeah. What I found really intriguing is if you if you studied ITV listings uh, in in the 1980s and 1990s, in 1988, British wrestling was cancelled from ITV. Several years later, they started to import tapes of WCW and ended up showing it in the same time slot that world of sport wrestling had once been on. So I found that absolutely fascinating that there was still a huge market for pro wrestling and the void was ended up, ended up being filled by imported programming. The 
I guess when the WF and you know started to send its programming into into, into the British uh, into British shores, it was probably based on the success of American films in the UK market because I think the sure. UK market has always been a strong secondary market for Hollywood, and once the WF had 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 completed its national expansion, it seemed like a you know a natural second phase as part of a global rollout to see how far they could go there. And the the explosion of WF's popularity and to some extent WCW's popularity on British shores was enormous. Uh, some of you know everyone knows about the, the the famed SummerSlam 92 match with Brett and Davy Boy Smith, which attracted around 80,000 people. But that was only part of the British wrestling's, uh, or sorry, the British relationship with WF. The, the WF's market uh, reach in the, in the 1990s following the steroid scandal had, it had really diminished uh, domestically, but the UK market remained a stronghold, which almost kept business afloat to some extent in the early 1990s when the product itself was failing internationally and, and drawing you know, lesser returns, the United Kingdom maintained a very strong fan base. If you look at the success of 1997 pay-per-view One Night Only, which was the, the, the first major pay-per-view that the the WF presented exclusively for the UK market. The crowd there is, you know, tens of thousands of people there, which the WF was not necessarily drawing at the time in, in the United States. Yeah. And, and I remember the WCW thing too, over there, I think, weren't they also, they were doing very well in Germany at that time too, weren't they? I remember them doing a lot of shows in the UK and in Germany, in like the this is like the Vader era, you know. And That's right. In fact, as people know, the infamous match with Cactus Jack and Mick Foley when his ear came off, that was, mm-hmm. I believe, in Munich, right? I think it was. That's correct. Interestingly, you mentioned WCW's success in the, in, in the United Kingdom. In the March 1993 tour of the United Kingdom, WCW actually had its most successful week of business. They drew around 11,000 people to Wembley Arena, which isn't to be confused with Wembley Stadium, but it's a big arena that's on the same site. And that was individually WCW's strongest gate ever to that point. They had a success, uh, a succession of sellout crowds all the way up until uh, that weekend in March 17th. And then they came back, added Germany, as you said, into their their um, touring schedule and the thing that was really smart about the company i know that wcw often gets maligned for making questionable decisions but one of the things that they really did well was with the german tours they based it around the idea of a tournament which was what german wrestling was always based around the idea of a sequence of matches which would have a point system or a knockout system and that's where they instigated in 1994, in March, the European Cup, which was eventually won by Sting on his birthday. Right. Um, but they, they built the whole show 
or sorry, this sequence of shows around this a tournament system, which is kind of smart in a way because conversely to that system or that way of thinking was the WF, who were presenting the same show in Aberdeen that they would present in Glasgow or in London night after night. So if you'd seen the WF once on that tour, you didn't need to see them again because they were presenting the same card. Right. WCW was smart with the German yeah. fans because the German fans could go back night after night after night to follow the storyline of the tournament. And I also think because, I mean, my own theory on that partly too, is WCW did a better job of presenting their product as sport. Whereas the WWF, it was like going to the circus, you know, you're not going to go unless you're, you know, a maniac or something, you're not going to go to all the different stops of the circus on the tour. You go when it comes to the, building that's closest to where you live and then you're happy where whereas uh with wcw may i think it even goes back to the crockett mentality of like a more sports it, it has the greater resemblance of sports than i mean nobody watching it is going to mistake it for a sport but it has the resemblance of sport more than the wwf did in that era you know absolutely absolutely and when WCW first got its Saturday afternoon time slot. That was in May of 1992, which, as you know, was the Bill Watts era. So what a launching pad for the kind of sports-centric approach to wrestling than to have Bill Watts as the booker. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, the story of the marketing of WCW, in the UK at least, was that they were presenting real wrestling Whereas they were always lampooning the WF's approach and saying it was a cartoon and highlighting how, you know, incredible it was, as opposed to their product, which was centered around believability. And and to a certain degree, that was even the case here. I always remember, you know, among fans, that was the idea that WCW and before that Crockett and the NWA was, quote unquote, more real than the WWF. You know, you'd watch, you'd go, oh my God, like he really did that. That that connected. That was that it just felt more real. And I think in that in that UK era, having Vader as the champion went such a long way uh to to doing that because he was so convincing, so believable, just brutal. I even go back and watch his stuff now. Um I watched the the match with Ron Simmons when Ron Simmons beat him for the title. And there's another, there was a great one from WCW Saturday night in that era where Ricky Steamboat got a shot. It was not on a pay-per-view. It was on WCW Saturday night and Ricky Steamboat, who is the greatest, you know, seller of all time. Right. And he's in there with the most punishing wrestler of all time. So it's like this perfect match where Vader is looks so brutal and Steamboat looks like he's being murdered. And it's just, it's the kind of match where every now and then you get those matches where you can show it to somebody who's skeptical about wrestling and thinks it's just a lot of stupid nonsense and go, well, look at this. Isn't this pretty cool? And they might actually be on board for like 10 minutes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first the first WCW card that I saw in my hometown was headlined by Sting and Vader. Yeah, and did, didn't they even do a title? They did a couple of quick title changes when they went over there, right? That's where, right. They where Sting like briefly won it back, and then he lost it back to Vader before they got back to America, right? That's right. That's right. And 
how many times did you ever see a UK tour by an American promotion where they switched the world title? Right. You know, but what I thought was cool about that, because you look at other times and I don't know, I, I could say it was due to the internet, but the internet wasn't really a big thing at all at that time. But I think about other times where they would, they would switch an American title overseas. They would usually ignore it. Like um, in America, like it, what happened in New Zealand with Harley race and Ric Flair and what happened, what would usually happen in Japan with, with giant Baba, you wouldn't really hear about it here, you know? And, but, but with the sting invader stuff, they mentioned it on TV in America that while we were over in the UK, Sting beat Vader for the belt and then lost it back. I, I remember actually being well aware of that from their TV show. So that was a change. That's right. And they also, I believe, ran a cover story on the July 1993 edition of WCW magazine, where it was like Sting's championship journal. Right. Uh, yes, 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 yes. One of the great underrated wrestling magazines, by the way, the original WCW magazine, which was done by the London publishing pro wrestling illustrated people. They did such a great job. It was all color, all slick. I, I, I enjoyed that magazine quite a bit. I'm sorry to see that it didn't last more than a few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a shame when they started to downscale it. The, the, for some reason decided to, uh, you know, cheapen the, the production values of the magazine because it started to go half black yes. and white for a while. That's right. Well, I think what happened was, you know, PWI and the London magazines, they were in black and white. They would typically have like a color insert, as people remember. And, and of course, the cover would be color. And I always got the impression because when they started doing the WCW magazine, which was all color and all slick, then mysteriously at that same moment, PWI also became all color and all slick. And I always felt, and the PWI people can correct me if I'm wrong, that they were getting some of that WCW money and they were able to kind of bump up the production value of their own magazine, which was probably part of the deal. But eventually, like you said, it started to kind of just go back uh, to the way it was. In, in fact, even PWI went back to being black and white again for years. I mean, they're all color now, but but um, that was a good magazine. My good friend, Dennis Brent, who was at WCW at the time and then later jumped over with um, Jim Ross to come to the WWF, was heavily involved. I think he was one of the editors on that. And, and he's another person I'd love to get on here. I don't know if you've ever talked to Dennis. He's one of these De invisible people, guy. right? It's like everybody knows him in wrestling, but but fans don't necessarily know him. But he's done so much. Photographer, editor, writer, everything. Just jack of all trades. God, he, he worked for world-class he worked for bill watts he worked for you know dub crockett and wcw and the wwf i mean uh, you know come on in fact his if you want a, a bit of rare scottish trivia for you it was actually dennis brent who helped bring in one of the biggest stars currently in pro wrestling who's drew mcintyre because really? drew ordered dennis used to create these little books that were red covered and they were little small books that you could order on an, on an advert with an advertisement in one of the wrestling magazines. And it was like the guide on how to make it in pro wrestling. And it would give you an address list of every single pro wrestling trainer, any like agent, you know. And it was basically an insider's kind of guide to pro wrestling. And it also had a glossary of like smartened phrases and 
things like that so that people could blag their way into the business. Um, Dennis, as you mentioned, you know, not only did he create the programs for World Class and Bill Watts, he was actually really the one that was responsible for WCW Magazine more than, than anyone because it was his vision that created the forerunner of that magazine, which was the Wrestling Wrap-Up. Uh, right, yes, yes, yes. Which was an arena publication. And then he went on to the WCW magazine before, as you said, moving to the WF with his wife, Lynn, and ultimately running, I believe it was Raw magazine. Uh, yeah, he when he came in there, because um, I guess JR, JR came in 93. So I have to assume, I mean, I wasn't there at that time that Dennis and Lynn also came over in 93, which would mean now Raw magazine didn't exist yet at that time. So I think that Jim had plugged Dennis in to whatever was going on in the publications department. But yes, when Raw started in 96, Raw Magazine with Vince Russo, um, the th from my understanding of it, the three main creative people involved was were Vince Russo, Dennis, and Kevin Kelly. That was like the nucleus of Raw Magazine at the time. And um, in fact, when I started there, I started in 2000. And uh, at that time, Russo had left a few months before. Barry Werner, who was the former sports editor for the New York Daily News, who had been brought in to kind of, I guess, maybe do the day-to-day -day stuff because Russo was doing television. He then took over and Barry kind of tried to remake things and one of the things he did, which is he brought in a lot of new blood. I was one of those people. He brought in a lot of magazine people. And because he came from outside wrestling, another thing he did was he kind of um, minimized or in he didn't want to ruffle any feathers. He, he, he didn't do it in an antagonistic way, but he kind of phased out Dennis and Kevin because he wanted more experienced magazine people not just wrestling people but because uh, he brought in mike fazioli who was the editor of espn the magazine and things like that and so that at that point dennis's role became a lot less but you know barry i remember when i was there barry made it a point always we were to keep dennis's name in the masthead and he would be a consultant and he was involved he had a lot of respect for dennis he just wanted his own people, I think, in there at that time. But but Dennis and Lynn was amazing too in HR. My God, she was like a machine. You she worked for she worked for um, talent relations, and you would send her an email, and you would have an answer back within like three minutes. Any no matter what what when it was, I mean, it was astonishing. Yeah, they were great. The some of the unsung heroes of the wrestling business for sure. The Brents. That's right, and. Um... Dennis, I believe, also had a role in talent relations as well with, with Jim at some point. So he did. Like many yeah. people, a lot of people within the DRE and DRF wore multiple hats, you know, like Gene Oakland. He was producing a lot of content that people saw that he wasn't even on. So, you know, there was always that kind of nucleus within the company, as you mentioned, of people doing different roles. You mentioned Kevin Kelly's role in the magazine. There's so much within the professional wrestling industry that is unseen by fans, but it's carried out by, by, by the wrestlers fulfilling other jobs. Think about ECW, where the guys were involved in merchandise and personally sending out their, the T-shirts, things like that. So, 
you know wrestling's yeah. always been one of those things about where people are forced to become a jack of all trades otherwise they can get left behind yeah i mean when i was there it was that way it, they, they they discouraged specialization and so i would work i remember you know technically i was in the publications department editing writing but i would work with consumer products i would work with creative services i would work with digital media i would work with legal i mean whoever needed my help i remember when brock lesnar left the wwe in 2003 and he was going to work for i guess he tried to get on the minnesota vikings football team american football team and then he uh he tried to you know go into the ufc well he succeeded there was some kind of a lawsuit at the time. I don't fully remember what it was. I think he maybe was trying to get out of a contract or something. They, um, and please Brock Lesnar, don't hunt me down and find me. Um, they, you, they asked for my help um, to establish a timeline because they knew I was like this wrestling encyclopedia of when he came to work there, when he had his first match, when he did this, when he did that. They were trying to establish some type of timeline of his employment with the company to help them with the lawsuit. And because the word had spread inside the company, Oh my God, there's this guy in publications. He's like a walking encyclopedia of wrestling. We could use him for everything. I had that reputation. I worked with live events. I used to do the advertorial sections that would run in the local newspapers in the run up to WrestleMania in whatever city WrestleMania was going to be in. So, yeah, I mean like there wasn't, you know, that kind of narrow minded view. In fact, when the magazine department changed up uh, when I was there towards the end of my run there in 2006, they brought in a lot of New York magazine people that believed very much in the opposite, you know, very much specialization. They didn't want to work closely with the other departments. It's like they even asked and succeeded in getting their own photo department, which was separate from the photo department of the rest of the company. So it was a very different ethos from what I'd been used to, like what they used to call the Titan training. That's what they called it. When you go to work there, you just learn how to do everything, you know, on the fly. It, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Absolutely. No, that's, I think that's been, been the case with a lot of people that entered the business in a non-wrestling capacity. They end up doing multiple things <laughs> and fulfilling it. I mean, one of the, the biggest promoters uh, in the United Kingdom's history, who's just, in the process of retiring after 50 years in the business is Brian Dixon. Uh, Brian Dixon started off as basically the owner of the, or the, the lead of the Jim Brakes fan club and then became a pro wrestling photographer before establishing his own uh, wrestling promotion. And that's always been the case. If it, People in wrestling need to understand marketing. They need to understand, you know, what's current and what's not. And the whole idea of pro wrestling is that it's always changing. Right. So it's important to never specialize. Otherwise, you know, the phrase, you can't see the wood for the trees becomes absolutely true. You cannot, if you, if you get entrenched in one aspect of your business, you cannot necessarily have an overview of how the business is performing. And that's the key. It's to maintain a, a level of, almost almost impartiality uh, of your own business for it to right. succeed. Well, and, and, you know, I wanted to ask you this before. I, I, I want to make sure I don't forget about this because it, it keeps coming up and it interests me. And it was one of the first things we talked about, actually. 
uh, and this is more for fans over here, you know, um, I think who there's, there's more of an education that's needed on the history of UK wrestling. And so, you know, cause like, like we've said this, you, you always hear about Japan, you know, you always hear about Mexico. We know chapter and verse, uh, the UK to me seems like, uh, it should be among those two, you know, it's sort of like the third non-American, non-North American international UK, uh, I mean, a uh, professional wrestling universe, you know, mm-hmm. but here's the thing. This is what fascinated me. Now, um, you yourself are Scottish, right? Now, the idea of the, the, the professional wrestling hall of fame of Scotland. So what, and for Scotland, what differentiates and forgive my ignorant American attitude, but uh, between let's say UK wrestling at large, the bigger picture of UK wrestling and specifically the Scottish wrestling scene. Like how would you explain that to somebody who has no idea and would just think like, well, I, England, Scotland, I mean, it's probably the same scene, right? What would you say to somebody like that? Okay. Well, first off, professional wrestling has different roots geographically wherever you go. So if you think about the likes of Northern England, a lot of professional wrestlers came from Wigan, where there was, you know, the Lancashire pit fights and things of that nature. It was almost a case of, you know, getting the coal miners to fight each other and, and people would place bets on it. Within Scotland itself, there's a, a culture of the Highland Games. So you would get all these folk wrestlers who were catch wrestlers that were, in, that were trying different types of folk competitions, such as Scottish backhold wrestling. In Ireland, there was a cultural wrestling style called collar and elbow wrestling. And these were all different types of indigenous wrestling styles, which were legitimate. But each, all of these wrestling styles ended up almost having an influence on the way that professional wrestlers approached the business in those different areas within the United Kingdom. So the likes of English wrestlers, for example, a lot of them in the early days had the kind of Wigan mindset that was really entrenched from Billy Riley's gym. A lot of wrestlers, yeah, the snake pit, uh, such as likes of Carl Gotch, who visited there later on, and uh, more homegrown talents such as Billy Robinson. In, in Scotland itself, there's a vast difference culturally and politically than England in some respects. Although we've got a lot of similarities with other nations within the United Kingdom, there are some disparities as well. So the likes of the Scottish wrestling scene was just different in the fact that once professional wrestling had evolved within all of the the, the different countries of the United Kingdom, one of the key parts that kept it going was the idea of playing off nationalism uh, to to be drawing a drawing card. So you get these big super shows of Team England versus Team Scotland, and it might be a four-match spectacular that would have you know, a lightweight challenge match between George Kidd and an English challenger or a heavyweight match between the likes of, uh, you know, Ian Campbell from Scotland versus an, a, an English invader. So 
there was ve very much a case of national pride. And you, you have in rugby the home nation games, which are, you know, the Welsh and Northern Irish and uh, English teams and, and Scottish teams all competing for its own, for, for basically supremacy within the United Kingdom. And that was very much a factor in the old wrestling makeup, particularly in the smaller countries such as Scotland, Northern Ireland, and England. But within, within the overall history of professional wrestling in Britain, there are a lot of similarities as well, such as the fact that by 1952, there was effectively a cartel similar to the National Wrestling Alliance, which controlled most of wrestling up and down the country. Uh, that was called Joint Promotions and was comprised of six promoters within these shores. In Scotland, the main promoters here were uh, George Rowisco and Arthur Green. They, they ran the, the main territory in Scotland, as well as some other promotions that were occasionally done by star wrestlers, such as uh, George Kidd and Andy Robin, who would occasionally put on their own shows for various purposes, whether it was a charity show or for another purpose. So uh, that, that joint promotions was so important to the history of pro wrestling because in some ways it was an attempt to control all of wrestling by creating a cartel, but in others it actually caused, similar to in the United States, splinter factions where you'd get these outlaw territories. Outlaws, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that was, that was a key thing, in, particularly in Wales, for example, where you had promoters like Aurig Williams, who ended up getting a television uh, deal with a channel called S4C, which is a Welsh, a Welsh language channel. And he created a version of pro wrestling that was named Reslo. And it was it used a lot of the British wrestlers, but it was very much a Welsh product. Similarly, in Scotland, we had a lot of shows which were, were centered on the idea of nationalism. Scots, you know, Scottish wrestlers versus outside talent, etc. And when would you say was kind of like the heyday of this when it was really taking off? Uh, would it be the 60s or, or before that, 50s? I mean, it, you, could, you, could, you could almost chart the heyday in two separate, with two separate mindsets. If you're talking purely on attendance, post-war was absolutely key in terms of the, the halls up and down the country, you know, were, 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 were absolutely full um, of spectators, even though we were in the middle of a post-war recession. Halls were, were generally bringing in around 3,000 people up and down the country to weekly cards per night. After television took off, then you had audiences of upwards of 8 million people tuning in to you know the likes of your Saturday afternoon television with the likes of uh, Mick McManus, Jackie Palo, and Les Kellett, and so many other names. So arguably, television was the heyday in terms of exposure, but in terms of touring business, probably the post-war boom in the 1950s all the way through to the television era was probably the heyday. Hmm. 
Yeah, because uh, it seems to me, and this I also found this when I was researching the history of uh, pro wrestling in Japan, that it's like uh, uh, similar things that happened here, except just later than they happened here. So, so sometimes it feels like the British wrestling scene, uh, pro wrestling scene, let's say maybe coming out of World War II and the years beyond that, it feels like what pro wrestling was in the United States in the late 19th century, you know, in the, in the era, I mean, obviously there was no TV, but in the era before, let's say even the rise of Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt, where you're really talking about something that is not so much entertainment, not so much a, a choreographed performance, but just essentially a, a rigged sport, right? <laughs> It is presented a hundred percent as a sport, and and you know it, it's like, um, and it just I guess for lack of a better term, um, it's fixed, right? I mean that that's a, that's a very different thing than what wrestling would become, where it's really kind of what we call working, and it's a performance, and there's an understanding to the layman when you watch it that this is not a competitive sport, this is a show there seemed to be much more of a sense of wanting people to really think what they were watching was completely on the level, um, excuse me, in that early uh, British wrestling. And, and, and part of that was because of governmental action and intervention within the British wrestling industry itself. Right. In the post-war era, there was a significant outcry as professional wrestling was becoming more bloodthirsty. People were starting to use things like outside objects etc and believe it or not because not everyone knew that professional wrestling was a work there were cries for professional wrestling to be banned because it was seen as too bloodthirsty and outlandish so what happened was there was a governmental inquiry into professional wrestling and that was conducted by uh, a former admiral within the navy Generally, what happens in the United Kingdom uh, lawmaking is that there's inquiries that are, I don't want to say sponsored, but they're commissioned under somebody within the House of Lords. So one of the members of the House of Lords was, a, was an admiral named uh, Lord Mount Evans, and he launched an inquiry into professional wrestling, which had the likes of Morris Webb, who was a member of Parliament, and Norman Morrell who was a former uh, wrestling Olympian, but he was also operating as a professional wrestling promoter. So he was brought in as to kind of be an expert witness into this inquiry. And off of the back of that, they decided to formalize wrestling rules so that it appeared less bloodthirsty. And out off of that came these this round system. Ah. Yes, and I it wondered was, about that. Yeah, and, and that's where that began, because at one point it was basically a fight to the finish, which in some ways American wrestling was with a single fall kind of, kind of idea. But with this inquiry, there were various changes that were made into professional wrestling. You know, the establishment of seven weight divisions, uh, the implementation of the rounds rules so that it, you know so that somebody would 
have a chance to get up off, off of their feet if they'd been taken down to the mat before they could engage in further combat and thing, things of that nature, just to kind of clean up the image of professional wrestling, but yeah. yet not hamper its appeal. Well, like what I learned when I was when I was researching those very early kind of post-American Civil War years of wrestling here, you know, kind of the days of William Muldoon and and the original Strangler Lewis, Evan Strangler Lewis, and all those guys, Colonel Hiram McLaughlin and those type of figures, where the idea of, uh, for example, like a fall, what they would call a fall, what it what it meant was what we would basically think of as a takedown today. Like if you if you got somebody down to the mat or, or you slammed them down or you got them down on their back or off their feet, that was a fall. So um, and, and the idea of pinning, it was more in line like when, when you look at amateur wrestling where pinning just means making contact, your shoulders make contact with the mat even for just a second for it's basically mm-hmm. a one count. Um that comes from because amateur wrestling, as a lot of people may know here, actually grew out of professional wrestling. It, it was a way to kind of harness the popularity of pro wrestling and bring it into colleges and things like that. So that harkens back to the original pro wrestling idea that if you land on your back, if you fall off your feet, that is a fall. And that's partly why they, they were doing two out of three falls, because you didn't want the match to just end there. You wanted to see it was, it was in a way almost a little like sumo where the idea is you're trying to toss somebody out of the circle. You're trying to just get them off their, their kind of center of gravity. So it was a very different kind of thing. You didn't have three counts. You didn't have, you know, that kind of thing. in, in the, in that really early um, pro wrestling, in fact, um, you know, Dave Meltzer and other people have pointed this out, but you know, if you were having a real, shoot fight uh shoot wrestling to to actually hold somebody down who is not unconscious for three full seconds with their shoulders on the mat a competent wrestler is almost impossible you know for for that length of time like they would have to be utterly and completely exhausted or unconscious so that Mm -hmm. is almost one of those developments of the worked style of wrestling that we're going to do the three count which you know, in a real shoot would be next to impossible to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about the professional wrestling rules in the United Kingdom was that generally it was a best of three, similar to the United States. And this is what where professional wrestling matches could become quite hard to follow on television because often these the matches on World of Sport would be joined in progress after somebody had secured a fall. So... Because they were so long, is that it? Because of the length of them? Yeah, basically, yeah. Because if you have potentially three minutes or five minute rounds and something goes the distance to 12 rounds, that could be like a one hour Broadway match. Right. You know, uh, potentially. And that goes back to even how it was here, where you'd have those matches that would go on for hours and hours. And sometimes people would just be lying on top of each other or sometimes they'd even just be on their feet, just locked up for 45 minutes straight, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And um, not the most spectator friendly kind of uh, wrestling for sure. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the thing about the rounds is that when wrestlers became acquainted with the rounds, they started to be able to use that to their storytelling advantage. 
because the fortunate thing about the rounds is you can create a small story within the round. Within one round, you can make another story in the next round, but you can have an overarching story across the whole match. Yes. So it's a very different psychological way of planning a match than you would have in an American wrestling match, for example, or in a Japanese wrestling, or in you know the world of Lucha Libre. It's a, it was a very different style. And basically the wrestlers here either became the most adaptable wrestlers in the world when they traveled, or they were found out quickly to be the most rigid and couldn't last if they, if they traveled elsewhere. And not everyone that traveled elsewhere could make it, you know, and very few wrestlers conversely that came over here were willing to learn that style, you know, right. Um, or could adapt. Some stars did, you know, the likes of Ricky Starr. He had tremendous success in the United Kingdom. The likes of, you know, Peter Maivia, he had fantastic success. Harold Sakata. There were so many guys that came over here that adapted quickly, but not everyone could. And conversely, not every single wrestler from the UK made it when they went elsewhere. Well, you certainly have would have to be very tough. And I mean, the guys that you mentioned that came over there were you know, destruction machines. So it's understandable <laughs> that they'd be able to survive. I mean, those were like dangerous, dangerous men. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and with Ricky Starr, though, that's an interesting one because um, I know that he left the American wrestling scene pretty early. He was a big star here in the 50s. He was from that whole TV wrestling boom, the gorgeous George Antonino Rocca era. He was one of those characters. He was a ballet dancer, an actual ballet dancer, and he used it as his gimmick. He was promoted here as being from Greenwich Village, New York City, which to Americans would be a very coded message as to his sexual orientation related to the fact that he was a male ballet dancer, but that was professional wrestling back then. He wouldn't be the type to that you would imagine would be able to catch on over there in the UK, but he did leave here. I think he left here in the sixties and he had success for years wrestling, not just in the UK, but even on the continent in Europe, right? I think in France and Germany and places like that. And he settled there. He lived there. He only died about five or six years ago. And he, he lived in Europe for the rest of his life. Right. That's right. And one of the reasons he was a success was because he was legitimately from another country hmm. whereas in the united kingdom one of the one of the kind of cons of the the british wrestling scene was that if there was somebody that had heritage from elsewhere they would automatically be branded as being from the country that their forefathers had been from so the likes of you know stefan miller he was seen as a, someone from like norway and he was actually he grew up in london his whole life uh, the likes of Mick McManus, he was presented as Irish during the height of the Troubles, which, you know, was incredibly brave for him to do uh, during the kind of Troubles with the IRA, etc. He was portrayed as being Irish, even though he was from London, he was from New Cross. Uh, the likes of, later on, Johnny Kincaid, who is as English as you get, because of the colour of his skin, he was presented as being from Barbados. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we did we did the same stuff. stuff here. I mean, it's no, you know, yes. uh, it's that's that's wrestling to a certain but degree. 
it was just because professional wrestling to maximize its appeal was very much a case of, you know, if you're going to advertise your card as having the best in the world, right. people want to see a representation that the wrestlers are from all over the world and aren't just a bunch of local guys facing guys from the next town. I even remember that as a kid watching the World Wrestling Federation because, you know, I'm 12 years old. I have a very literal mind, 12-year-old child. And, okay, this thing is called the World Wrestling Federation. And it seems like almost everyone is American or maybe Canadian. And then I go, okay, um, I'd look at the roster, you know, because even in the magazines they would have in those days like a visual roster. I don't know if you remember where it would be like WWF superstars and they would list everyone. And I started to go, and I'm 12, 13. I'm not, you know, and I'm going, okay, so it looks like everyone who's not American is like a complete cartoon. So, okay, well, if, if this is the world, well, we've got Kamala. He represents the nation of Uganda. Little did I know, you know, that he was actually Jim Harris from Mississippi, right? But, okay, he's, he's a cartoon. We have Killer Khan who actually was from Japan and is from Japan, but, but he's like a, he's like a Mongol warrior, you know, kind of thing. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't know. This doesn't really seem to be a full representation of, of the world. This is more, this, you know, even then I was able to kind of see through that idea of what is essentially an American wrestling promotion, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the th- what was always amazing to me as well with some of these smaller promotions, uh, the likes of the promotions that were run by a family, sometimes the family members would change the names so that they could wrestle each other. That's great. You know, whereas in the United States, obviously, you had the Von Erics who were a, were a big dynasty. They probably couldn't get away with changing their names because they all looked alike. Right. I know that the, we had the Fuller family here in the in the southeast where there was a name change. So you had the patriarch of that family was Roy Welch. And I don't I'm trying to remember the logistics of how this happened, but his son was Buddy Fuller. And I think mm-hmm. the actual family name is Welch. And That's for right. some reason, uh, Buddy Fuller called himself Buddy Fuller and changed the name. And then all of his kids became Fullers and you had Robert Fuller and, uh, you know, and um, um, Ron became Tennessee Lee, right? Yeah, Ron Fuller, right? Tennessee Lee, or uh, I also remember him as Colonel Robert Parker in, in WCW. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I think that and now there's a fourth generation, too, of those of those Fullers wrestling. But but there was a name change there. I don't know if it was for the same reason of if the, so that they could wrestle each other. But um, that family, that wrestling family always interests me because you don't hear a lot about it and you don't hear a lot about even that that whole territory as much as you should. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of the biggest, most expansive professional wrestling family, at least in American wrestling, maybe that there's ever been because they have they have all cousins and relatives that were referees that did this and did that and worked in the business in some way. It, it's this huge um, wrestling family that you don't hear enough about. There's so much content that's almost lost to time. Uh, one of the, you know, as a, as a historian, I always like to revisit shows such as Pro Wrestling This Week, sure, which I don't know if, yeah. you, if you remember the, that Was show. that the Gordon Soli one? Uh, Gordon Soli, Joe Pedicino. Joe Pedicino, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's a fantastic 
gateway into the past because it shows you a lot of the territories that haven't necessarily had their stories preserved to the same extent as yeah. the likes of the WAF or WCW. I loved I loved stuff like that that would pull together all the different uh, companies and give you an idea of professional wrestling as a quote unquote sport instead of just one company or a brand or whatever. It just gives you a sense of the bigger picture. I was always that that kind of stuff always appealed to me um, mm-hmm. doing that. But I know like, for example, that Southeast territory, continental, whatever you want to call it, and had different names over the years. Um, one of the things I always remember hearing was that they did not like to have magazine coverage of their wrestling. They, they thought it exposed the business, which is crazy to think, but they, they, they liked to have real control. So they were afraid, for example, that um, if their wrestling was put in the magazines, that it would make their guys look bad somehow. Or let's say you might discover that one of their wrestlers uh, went somewhere else and had another gimmick or became a bad guy or a good guy. And uh, they like to really have total control over the kayfabe aspect of their business. And even those old kayfabe wrestling magazines, they felt were like a little too informative. They didn't want their fans to be too educated as to the product. They, they That's what I've always heard. And the effect of that though, was that it wasn't as well preserved because it's not, it was never really covered in the, in the wrestling magazines. Mm-hmm. Again, it just, it's just one of those things that there's multiple ways of looking at it. I mean, I can understand the reasoning why, but it's like television itself as a medium. A lot of people, when television was taken off, were opposed to that being involved with professional wrestling, thinking it was going to have an effect on live attendance, because why would you go to a show when you can get wrestling presented to your living room? Ultimately, though, wrestling could also be used as a way of creating stars. And right. making you want to go to the arenas to see the TV stars. So there's there's arguments for and against every medium, whether it's print media, whether it's digital media. You know, look at the look at the way that people decry but also praise the internet's effect on pro wrestling. You know, pro wrestling in some ways has smartened people up uh, when it's been exposed in the internet, and yet. There's often been people that have said that the business is too exposed because you can get information on contract negotiations, for example, before they are complete. You know, I mean, yeah. Look at the uh, look at the uh, the debut of Cody Rhodes this year at WrestleMania. Almost everyone knew that he was going to be Seth's partner, but did it necessarily have an adverse effect on the appeal of that match? I I don't think so. If anything, it enhanced it. But you'll get others that we yeah. say completely spoiled it. So it's yeah, just- it, it created anticipation, which was which is an upside of it instead of you know being a total surprise, which I guess that would have been had its benefits too. But it created this groundswell of of anticipation, and I think like with TV, like you mentioned, the rise of TV, what it wound up doing, to my estimation, is that it created what we now call the casual wrestling fan because. Before television, the only way to experience pro wrestling was to buy a ticket, go to the building, sit in the seat, watch it live. And a lot of, you know, and and so you had the wrestling fans that would go do that. And then you had everybody else, you know, who, who had never done that or wouldn't necessarily do that. But they would turn their TV on and watch the show for an hour. 
And you had tons of people that had probably probably would have never dreamt of buying a ticket to a wrestling event, but they would watch that show every week. And so that like, you know, the casual, if you want to call it that wrestling fan was born, you know, in the late forties, early fifties. Well, I mean, for any, for any product to sell, you need a shop window. Yes. So that's the way I see it is that television basically just created a shop window and Someone will work out quite quickly if they like a product or if they don't like a product, regardless of what that product is, you know, and pro wrestling is very much a case of, you know, it's, it's what we would describe as the marmite of entertainment because people either love it or they hate it. Yeah. And it's always been a conservatively run business traditionally, very resistant to change, very insulated. Um, even if you look at things like the terminology, the insider terminology, if you know, and we've had these conversations about pop culture in general, and it's hilarious to me, we've talked for an hour and haven't even gotten into any of that, which is <laughs> going to necessitate a second episode. But, but if you look at the terminology, it's a lot of old showbiz terminology. It's carnival mm-hmm. terminology. It's vaudeville terminology, talking about finishes, high spots, Heels, baby faces, gimmicks, like, uh, you know, uh, these were terms that were used in show business 100 years ago, and they're not anymore. They've been forgotten or abandoned or they've changed with the times, you know, and if, if you watch old movies from the 30s and 40s, you will hear characters use those terms. And think, well, what, what, am I watching a wrestling show? No, it's just that was known. That was common parlance of the day. You know, putting something over. We're going to put this song over. We're going to put this act over. Um, but because wrestling is so insulated, the terminology survived to the present day. But because of that, you have a business that's that's insulated and resistant to change and conservative. And I think you know, recent years that's that's changed. But it's always been behind a lot of the changes in a way like even when i worked at wwe we would talk about how it felt like wrestling was about 10 years behind the times at at any given moment in time i don't know if i would say that anymore but but i but i felt it you know throughout most of wrestling's history that was the case and i I would even extend that to some of the spectators as well that were (laughs) in attendance i mean if you watch wrestlemania one it looks like it was filmed in the mid 70s I can't, I sometimes can't believe I, uh, you know, I, I try to wrap my head around the time frames of things because I'll think about wrestling in the seventies and, or, you know, I'll be watching something like um, I was doing research for Dusty Rhodes uh, article I did in PWI and his match against superstar Billy Graham at Madison square garden in 1977. And you think of that and and it feels like, eons ago like some dusty time ago and then i'm going well star Wars was was out you know and and i was a child at this time you know this wasn't like some ancient era long ago but you you sometimes forget it's like the history of our culture and the history of wrestling are almost two different things i'll be watching bob backland wrestle as the wwf champion and I'm thinking like it's, you know, it's like watching some champion from another age or whatever. And I'm going, you know, I was in the third grade when this match happened. It wasn't really that long ago. This is only two years before WrestleMania, you know, or something like that. And 
it does feel like things are a lot further back in history than they really are in re- with wrestling. Absolutely, and especially when a lot of the uh, territories, how long some of them took to adapt to color television when oh, yes. other shows, for example, were all in color, and yeah. yet you had these territories that were still using the black and white uh, filming techniques. And I know here in the U.S., uh, by about 1965, color TV was the standard. The networks were all using it, and any show that was in black and white had to switch over to color and that kind of thing. And but but yeah, wrestling just hung on. You can watch some wrestling from the late 60s, and it's still black and white, even mm-hmm. maybe even later than that. That's right. That's right. So it's just. It's just, it's always been interesting to me, wrestling's, uh, you know, how it places itself within the, the, the zeitgeist of, 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 of popular culture. You were mentioning the likes of the, uh, the terminology that was used earlier on, uh, such as babyface, heel, and other terms that are insider terms. British wrestling itself had some of its own uh, terms that weren't used anywhere else, oh, that's such as our baby faces were called blue eyes, for example. <laughs> but it's the same concept, right? Isn't that great? Baby face, it's, blue eyes. Yep. And for example, we in, in the UK, a lot of the terminology was centered off of what's called Cockney rhyming slang. Uh, I hmm. don't know if you're familiar with that term. I know what Cockney where, is, but yeah. yeah. So, so rhyming slang, if you, if, for those that are unfamiliar, is where you take a word and you basically call it something else that rhymes with it. So if you were to say, I'm away up the apples and pears, you're going up the stairs. <laughs> or the, this, this, this person was on, I was speaking to this person on the rag and bone, which means they're on the phone. Okay. So it's like Carney. It's like they're your own Carney. Yeah. Yes, and that was the case with some of the, the terms within professional wrestling. So, for example, if a guy was a masked wrestler, his mask would be referred to as a thermos because a thermos is a thermos flask, which is a mask. So, wow, this, this requires a lot more thought. I thought carny was difficult because I hear some guys, I, I, I pretty much think this is a lost art. I don't know. I haven't been around locker rooms in a while i don't know if people are still conversant but uh carney if you ever hear it spoken mm-hmm. especially quickly fluently because the idea is to speak it quickly because yep. if you speak it slowly or even the at the cadence of normal speech people could crack it you know after That's a couple right. of minutes you could figure it out the idea is you have to do it really fast and i absolutely cannot do it so i'm not going to do it here but even when i worked in wwe even in the early 2000s, I remember like you would occasionally hear it in the locker room, especially with some of the older talent. But I would venture to say, I don't know if you'd hear it anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and also not only the carny terms, but a lot of the times they used to add a Z in the middle of the vowels. Is that right? Yeah, that's how you do it here. So sometimes you would you would add a Z or a Z, as we call it, sound in the middle, or sometimes it would be a ZN sound. So if you were going to. I'm going to get killed for this because I am not a pro wrestler and I don't pretend to be, but like, you know, I have a cup here. Right. So if, it, if I was saying it in Carney, I might say kiss up or I yeah. might say, or I might, there's variations. I might say kiss up. I might say Kia's up. Sometimes they do that. They'll, they'll, they'll alter the vowel sounds a little bit, 
but again, and, and then you have the guys that can do it with every, not just every word, but every consonant. So like, <laughs> let's say you are um, saying, uh, or not every consonant, I'm sorry. What kind of an English teacher am I? Every syllable, every syllable. So if, you've, if you're saying computer, you know, the amateur will say, might say computer, but if you're a pro, you might, oh God, I can't do it. You might say kazumpazutazur. Right. Yeah. And if you say that really fast and you say a whole sentence like that, no one's going to know what you're talking about in case they understand uh, Carney. But, uh, you know, that you'll you might hear words and things here and there. I remember guys would sometimes say in the ring, they might say Tiazime, which means it's time. It's time to finish the match. You know, mm-hmm. simple things like that. But um, and I think it was even used in carnivals. I don't think it's just a wrestling thing. I think it actually comes from sideshows and 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 things like that and and wherever they're trying to work marks you know they would use that and i've always believed i've never been able to prove this and no one can ever explain it to me but what happened in hip-hop culture where like people like snoop dogg would start using essentially what's what is carny (laughs) they would they would they would use the z sound or the zn sound in the middle of words um and I've never was able to understand how that happened. I, I wish somebody somebody should do a thesis on that. Did it come from pro wrestling? What's the connection? It can't be a coincidence. It just can't be. It's, it, that That's something that fascinated me. Yeah. So basically, pro wrestling, which we just spoke about being behind the times, was <laughs> the forerunner of gangster rap. Somehow, yeah. In a, in a strange way, it all comes full circle. That's, that's amazing. Brad, you know, this... I was yep. going to say that this is this has been great. I, I feel like <laughs> we we have very literally only scratched the surface here. We have had <laughs> we have had phone calls that have gone twice as long as this. But uh, but I do like to keep people wanting more. And I think it's a great idea because I do want to have you back and, and we could like get into all the other just multitudinous topics that we typically discuss when we're on the phone together in the, in the afternoon. We'll have whether to do it. Whether it's British wrestling, whether it's pop culture, whether it's anything, you know? Yeah. But what I want to say, but before we do that though, is if you wanted to maybe point people in the direction of the pro wrestling um, hall of fame for Scotland, where they could learn more about it, or, you know, if it has social media or a website or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, we do have, we, we do have social media. I mean, just to talk a bit about the pro wrestling hall of fame, uh, for Scotland is that we're going to have an induction again this year towards the end of the summer. It's going to be the induction of a wrestler called Ian Campbell, who was the probably the greatest super heavyweight in the history of the business here. He was also a huge pop culture star, appearing in the likes of Coronation Street. I don't know if that's a, a soap opera which has ever transcended the I Atlantic. Do. I but, have heard of it. Yes, I've yeah, heard of it. Yeah. It's, it's, I believe it's the world's oldest soap opera, which hmm. has been continuously running since 1961. Uh, but, but he was a major pro wrestling star and was the Scottish heavyweight champion for a long, long time. So he'll be inducted this year. His family will be in attendance. That will be in the town of Dunfermline on the 8th of September, which was the date of his birth. Uh, and yeah, that'll be, a, that'll be a fun day. Uh, I'm also working on the, a, a book which covers the career of George Kidd, who is without question the greatest wrestler in the history of this country. 
had a monumental uh, impact in terms of the way that chain wrestling spots were created and crafted. He was a he was dubbed the Houdini of the mat and was a real master of escape uh, and counter wrestling. So yeah, lots of projects that we're working on, and and you and I are obviously collaborating with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame material as well. So, right. Yep. That's that's how we met each other. Exciting. That is how we met. I'm I'm not going to presume that you'll be at the inductions next month. I know that's kind of a trip for you, but I would love it if you came out and I'll be there um, in Albany next month for that. That should be fun. But yeah, I mean that that is how we cross paths. That's true. That's right. And we're both members of the CAC as well. Yeah, that's right. So you've got to come to one of those things. I mean, you've, I will. Got, I will. I will. I've got to see you at one of those things and we'll talk more and we will do this again because there's a million other things I want to get to. So I, but thank you for taking the time to do it. And I know it's, it's in the evening over there. It's only the afternoon here. So I do appreciate that you uh, carved a little bit of time out to talk about this fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Bradley Craig, a fountain of information as always, not to be confused with the fountain of misinformation like the mouth of the South Jimmy Hart. Uh, Brad is a man who knows what he's talking about, and I always enjoy having conversations with him. We'll sometimes talk on the phone for hours at a time, and what you heard there was just kind of a snippet of the average phone call that we'll even have when no one's listening. So obviously Brad is going to be somebody that I have on to talk further on a future episode of Shut Up and Wrestle for sure. And speaking of future episodes, let's talk about some of those future episodes and what they will hold, because I have some more fascinating guests on the way. I mentioned them last week, but I will mention them again. Uh, we have people like Scott Teal, noted promoter, photographer, publisher, jack of all trades in the wrestling business. He's coming up. We have one of the co-producers of Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler and uh, a, a longtime wrestling fan, writer, editor, editor, and luminary, Mr. Evan Ginsberg, on the way. We have Carrie Williams, the writer for Slam Wrestling, longtime wrestling journalist, and a close personal friend once of the St. Louis promotions legend larry matisic all of those folks and more are on the way to shut up and wrestle in the weeks to come keep on listening and of course as you know the many ways that you can listen to shut up and wrestle there's our website suawpod.com there is podcast addict uh apple podcasts google podcasts spotify wherever you find podcasts keep listening uh, keep being a part of the Shut Up and Wrestle family. Of course, uh, on Facebook, if you haven't joined it yet, join the Facebook group. It's Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We have lots of great discussions and conversations there, and I talk about upcoming guests, and I add additional content to um, add to your experience of listening to this fine podcast. So please do go there if you're interested. Um, if you're interested in picking up my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, you can go to Amazon. It's fully available there in print form, in digital form, and even, yes, in audio form, read by yours truly. If you would like to read some of the articles I write in some of these fine professional wrestling publications, you have Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the granddaddy of all wrestling magazines, available at PWI 
hyphen-online.com. And you also have the fine folks across the pond at Inside the Ropes Magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And if you're looking for me personally on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And if you go to any of those pages, any of those social media platforms, you will find a link to my official author website. Um, so there you have it, the many ways that you can find me if you are inclined to do so. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you of that old Klingon proverb that revenge is a dish best served. Oh. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>